So people offered to buy us out, you know, the day we got the license (laughs) and we always said no. And we really were not looking to sell. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Hillary Peckham, COO of Etain Health. Hillary, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, Brian. I'm excited to talk to Hillary, learn a little bit more about the New York cannabis market. And how are you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk to Hillary and talk about New York. So Hillary, just for the record, uh, your location, please. So I, I our, our offices are in Westchester County, but we have four dispensaries and retail locations throughout the state of New York. There it is, Callum. Let the record state another New Yorker for us. <laughs> so, Hillary, for our listeners that are unfamiliar about you, can give a little background about yourself. Yep. So, I'm the chief operating officer of Etain LLC. I'm also one of the founders. So, my mother, my sister, and I uh, started entering the cannabis industry in 2014 when New York State first passed the Compassionate Care Act. And we started looking at what the opportunities were. And we were really compelled to enter the medical cannabis industry in New York because it's our home, but also because we had firsthand experience of how palliative and end-of-life care can be mismanaged. And then for myself, how pain can be mismanaged and wanted to be able to provide a better quality of life to patients, especially local ones that are um, in our communities. And so we were awarded a license, one of five licenses in the state in 2015. Um, And we opened our stores about six months after that. And we've been um, part of the medical cannabis industry here in New York for, um, you know, seven years. And we have a vertically integrated operation, um, which I oversee. So we cultivate we manufacture, and we retail and distribute all of our products throughout the state. I love it. I'm excited to dive into all those specifics, but I guess I got to stay with the first question. Earlier on, I read a a story that said you had a little hesitation about joining up and kind of entering the space. Can you kind of share a little bit about that story? Well, that's twofold, right? Because, you know, not only was it entering the cannabis industry, which really was not something that was in my purview. Um, I had studied piano in college, my sister studied ceramics. Um, and uh, this was not something that we really participated in or like that. Um, and it was until I learned about all these anecdotal stories of people having sort of life-changing outcomes from using cannabis that I got on board. But it's also a family business, right? So that comes with <laughs> its own challenges. So I was like, do I really want to go into business with my mom? And I'm so glad that I did. Um, for all all of the reasons uh, beyond the family part, I really enjoy watching and working with my mom. But uh, the opportunity to provide care and compassion to people in New York has been sort of unparalleled for me. Was there like a, a single moment once you got the ball rolling that you were like, you know, all of my worries were for nothing? Was there like a moment that you can remember? Um, you know, my mom and I had kind of spoken about doing this and she was a little noncommittal, but I could tell she really wanted to do it. And finally, I said, like, listen, if if we're going to do it, we're going to do this to win. And she said, okay. And so then <laughs> we jumped in and it was really wonderful after that. Uh, we immediately met uh, the organization Women Grow, which had just 
launched its first uh, meeting in New York, which we attended, and uh, found this amazing group of women who really sort of uh, took me in and my mom and helped us network and, and get the expertise we needed. So it was like immediately we found uh, our group of people and we were able to continue as soon as we were solidly committing. <laughs> Working with family definitely has this inner workings and challenges, right? Distributions of responsibilities, kind of the, the, the relationship dynamic of you and your sister and your mom. Those are all challenges. So when the three of you are sitting around deciding you're going to do this, how, how does the first step work? Is it we're going to separate responsibilities? We're going to have conversations? You know, take us through that insight. Yeah, so it's actually, you know, uh, I'll say worse as a joke, but worse than that. But <laughs> my husband works for us and my brother-in-law, my cousin and my uh, my twin brother as well. So we have a lot of family uh, in the company. So I think sort of quickly we realized... Uh, we would need to delegate and give people specific roles so that we weren't up in each other's business, which obviously happens anyway, because we all are a close family. But my sister is in charge of cultivation. My uh, brother-in-law in charge of production, and he's an engineer. So all the manufacturing and automation that goes into our products. Uh, my husband is the CIO. So he's in charge of all the information and technology data um, collection. I'm in charge of operations, uh, just because I'm very bossy. And then my mom is the CEO. <laughs> um, and uh, we all answered to her. Uh, and then um, we've just created, you know, structure. I think the value of having family is you have a group that's extremely committed. And I think all of us were aligned in the goal of providing high quality products that were changing people's lives like before anything else. And so we have been able to be very nimble and extremely lean because all of us are willing to take on more tasks than just the responsibility we've sort of been assigned. So my sister works on marketing and branding. So does my husband, um, you know, different product development and things like that we do with my brother-in-law. So it's um, very dynamic, but I think a huge asset and part of the reason why Etain's been successful for so long in the cannabis industry. How do you guys uh, separate uh, shop talk from like personal talk when you're having family dinner? I don't think you do. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer. Uh, so, you know, we have been pretty good. It got a little hard in, in COVID where I remember, you know, there was just a weekend where I was like, I don't want anything to do with any of you. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, uh, finding other things to do or like take family trips and 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 find other other things to talk about. Um, I have a one-year-old and my sister has a, a four-year-old. And so that's been really fun. But otherwise, you know, it's it's been very much just work-oriented. Yeah, a real hard line of separation between uh, family and work when they're pretty blurred. So uh, yeah. speak, speaking on cannabis, was there something from a medical benefit that earlier on you guys connected with as a family that led you to wanting to be involved here? So my grandmother was diagnosed with ALS and that is a terminal illness. And she was put on 22, 25 different medications. And all of those have interactions with each other that can be worse than the disease itself. And a doctor had actually recommended that we try to find cannabis. And at that point, there wasn't a legal mechanism to do so. So we weren't able to do that for my grandmother. But she had, um, well, my mother, who was her caretaker at the time, started researching and was I like, I think this is a great opportunity. And then for me, I had had a hip surgery that failed. And so I actually lost the use of my right leg for two years. And so I had to relearn how to walk. Um, and I personally saw how pain is mismanaged. So I was in college at the time 
And the only thing that I could be given was really Adderall and Percocet to try and get through my day, which is really not providing me quality of life. And so I became very like anti-pain medication um, and seeing the opportunities that this provided primarily like long-term pain patients for relief, um, just sleeping at night and those kind of things was something that really captured my attention. And so um, we went into it having had these personal experiences and then we have another family business. So literally all we do talk about is family business. <laughs> it's one or the other. Um, and uh, that has a lot of industrial property. And originally we thought it could be sort of an alignment through the um, through the two companies, but it was uh, because of cannabis laws and banking and everything, we had to fully se- segregate them. But uh, we thought we could use the underutilized property that we owned and we could uh, operate a cannabis business. Um, it very quickly diverged from there, but uh, with those synergies, that's sort of how we we set off on our path. Uh, so, I mean, you said that you originally, when you were speaking with the doctor, they they told you to kind of go seek out cannabis, but there wasn't any available. What was that search like once the doctor was like, hey, there might be this plant that could help? And you're like, well, where do I get it? <laughs> so... I think my mom asked my littlest brother for help. <laughs> and um, I, it's really not something that has been uh, part of my family's culture. So we were no help to my mother. Um, and uh, we were kind of stuck. I think Connecticut had a medical program at that point that had just gotten up and running. But my grandmother was very concerned with the federal illegality and things like that. And uh, eventually, like when the opportunity was like, we could do this for you, she um, she declined because she wasn't uh, uh, willing to try something new, which I understood at that point, she was trying all sorts of different medications. Yeah. Was there doubt that you'd win the license? So I think that uh, there was doubt from everybody else, but I was very sure that we were a good candidate throughout it, which now I'm looking back and I'm like, I was very um, bullish on that. <laughs> there As were, you should be. Yeah. Um, there were, uh, I think, 42 applications. Uh, we were the only family owned and the only women owned um, uh, applicant. And we really tried to prioritize communities that we know um, and to have a geographic diversity within our dispensary locations. I thought we had a really good team um, and we were able to execute once we got the license. So I, I knew that we would be able to do that. And so I didn't have any doubts, but definitely there were a lot of people who, uh, especially I look very young. So I looked like at that point, it was, you know, forever ago, I looked like I was 12. So a lot of people just really questioning uh why I was doing this or how we would could possibly get a license, but it worked out. So the day you guys got the license, what was that? Walk us through those feelings. Was it like a celebration? Was it like, hey, let's get to work? How did that uh, transpire? One of the people who definitely didn't think we were going to get a license was my dad. Um, And so (laughs) I was actually at their house when uh, we were awarded the license. And um, we didn't have corporate offices or anything because it was just me, my mom, my sister, uh, and uh, like two other people. And we would just work out of my uh, parents' house. And so that was our corporate address. And so all these news trucks uh, rolled up uh, thinking that uh, their house was where we were going to be growing all, all of the cannabis. And we live in like a pretty affluent and conservative neighborhood in Westchester. Uh, so that was not the messaging that we had really wanted. <laughs> I also <laughs> had been waiting for weeks for this uh, announcement to come out. So 
but we actually were hiding like under the windows. Um, uh, so the news trucks wouldn't see us. And our neighbor came over and told us, told them that we weren't home and sent them off. So that was sort of how, <laughs> how we kicked off the morning. And then, and then we had a, a family dinner and celebration that evening. Oh, yeah. And then my understanding of you is you're an action oriented person. So I'm sure everyone got a list of responsibilities needed to execute over the upcoming weeks. <laughs> so that afternoon, we we actually started construction on our manufacturing facility. <laughs> we kicked it off. Yeah. So, so take us through like how that is. So you have some assumptions going in. You're thinking one thing. You get the license. Now you start to think is what's a challenge that you didn't foresee happening that kind of took you along the way that looking back, you're like, ah, that definitely was a lot harder than I thought it going in. So I, I think that the application was detailed, so detailed that you had to basically build a business before it existed. And that gave a lot of benefit because you knew exactly what to do. But it's a whole different reality when you're under a very tight timeline. So we were given by law 180 days to get fully operational, which meant growing all your plants. At that point, only extracts were allowed. So you had to extract it. You had to create your products under standards that did not exist in the industry. So there were pharmaceutical standards, testing methods that were being created like as you were getting up and running. And you also had to be working on your retail locations, which meant signing leases, um, renovating, getting all the security requirements up and running and, and getting those going. So it was a huge undertaking. Um, and the the time was really the the main hurdle. And there's a huge difference between putting it on paper and then actually doing it. And so I think what we found, especially back then, was a lot of people claimed they had expertise that was not real. And so we just had to figure out how to do it on our own. And I don't think that much has changed today in the industry, unfortunately. And so we, we had a lot of um, sort of missteps figuring it out on our own or trusting people um, especially back then when there weren't references or anything like that. Um, but we we all figured it out. I, I definitely was like sleeping in our manufacturing facility uh, overnight because we were only getting a few hours of sleep towards the end of the time frame there. But it was, uh, you know, looking back on it, I look back on that time very fondly because it was, you know, a very core group of people um, that many of them are still with us today. It was very family oriented and we were all just figuring it out together as a team. And then meeting that goal of getting operational was really wonderful to do together with them. Yeah, I mean, it's the typical kind of startup story where you're just working as hard as you can and putting as much time in as will allow and uh, just just to be successful or just have the opportunity. So what was uh, kind of some of the conversations that happened internally when New York passed REC? Uh, sales or the ability for rec sales? Did you guys, was it immediate? Hey, we're definitely going to go jump in the adult use market and kind of pit and like play in both realms? Or what was that dialogue internally with your family like? So I think that when we first got the license, we just intended to stay medical because that was really our focus. But many years passed between yeah. the program opened and adult use. And then uh, there were many attempts at the adult use <laughs> legislation before it actually passed. So we had a long time to kind of adapt to what was going to happen in New York. I think very quickly it was apparent to us that there's no way to stay in business if you are only a medical provider, particularly in New York, where the medical program has sort of failed to thrive. So 
it's too small to support the 10 companies that exist today, much less if it shrinks when adult use comes online, it's going to get very difficult to support in the future. So very quickly, we recognized we needed to get on board with this and how we were going to adapt our business strategy to accommodate it. And so we were, we've always been very supportive. And additionally, the way that I have always seen the Etain brand is more of like a health and wellness product um, than a pharmaceutical. And I think the family uh, agreed with me with that and that uh, entering the adult use industry allows greater access to people who are using cannabis for betterment of their lives. And I think that our products are really um, complementary to that kind of uh, view of cannabis where, you know, maybe it's a night's sleep, maybe it's a sore ankle. Um, maybe it's just ongoing knee pain or something like that. Our products have a purpose that bring a, a better quality of life. So adult, the adult use industry would just expand our reach through that. So we've always been very supportive of it. What would you like to see the medical program do differently? So, you know, unfortunately, I think it's a little too late, right? Um, I think that uh, with adult use being so imminent, um, and they're going to open the program with so many more dispensaries for adult use than they've allowed in the medical program. I, I worry about the viability in the future, like at all. Uh, and I think there's some great qualities of the medical program in New York. The quality of products really is unparalleled and they're very trustworthy. Um, but uh, I, I don't know that that will last uh, into the future. Um, I'd like to see, you know, more product categories being allowed. We were never allowed food products and those kinds things. Uh, but we also were able to make adaptations to that. So we made a water-soluble powder that you can cook with. So that allowed our patients to be able to make their own products through that. Um, but I, I'm not sure, you know, at this point, I think uh, really bringing greater awareness to the fact that the medical program exists, that uh, for people who are looking at this as um, a medical treatment, the program is exceptional. You get access to pharmacists and doctors who can help you and guide you holistically, both with traditional pharmaceutical medication and cannabis to give uh, and treat your whatever you're sort of ailing from. Um, but I'm not sure that there's much to do <laughs> at this point. I think what's really going to be imperative to making sure that the medical program lasts is allowing medical products to be sold out of all dispensaries which includes the new ones coming online for adult use um, and allowing the current operators early entry into the adult use program to make sure that um, we have enough revenue to sustain both sort of segments of the business. I'm glad you brought up the powder. Uh, I am a medical patient and I am a frequent powder user from Etainel. So I'm excited to ask you this question. What is the go-to combination or food mechanism for the powder? Oh, you know, it's actually probably not what you think it is. It's just tea. <laughs> a lot of people really like to mix it in tea or coffee. So um, my sister, though, if you go and check out our Instagram, she has a lot of different baking recipes. She's an amazing cook. Um, I'm hopeless, so she does all of the content there. <laughs> so I... Uh, People have gotten extremely creative. She does like a whipped cream and things like that that are really amazing. Um, but it makes it so easily in a liquid that for most of our patients who are um, over 40, over 50, uh, it, it's very, very familiar to them to use it that way. Is it your favorite product? Uh, the powder, the lozenges are really, really tasty. So 
Um, the lozenges yeah. are tasty. Uh, I put the powder in my ice cream. I'd, I'd highly recommend that because yeah. it is delicious. My wife calls it my smiling ice cream because after it, I am certainly <laughs> smiling. Excellent. Um, our, uh, we launched a new vaporizer, the Motif Pen, and that is our most popular product. I think uh, we really tried to hone in on the temperatures um, and ease of use of the device. And so that's really taken off and that's our best seller by far. When New York consumers are walking into a dispensary for the first time, is there certain products you think are a good fit for a first time or who's kind of getting their feet wet versus more that are more experienced products? Do you have any recommendations for them? So I think when we created sort of our whole scope and family of products, we tried to keep in mind that there's going to be a range of experiences that patients have had when they walk in the in the door. So our products are highly potent. So if you were to buy a tincture, it's dosed by a drop, not by like a huge milliliter or anything like that. So we're a easily able to titrate our products sort of up and down. I would recommend something like a powder um, or a tincture where you can easily dose it um, as opposed to say a capsule where there's just a fixed dose per capsule. Um, but what we are also able to target with our products is sort of fast and long-term relief. So a vaporizer would give you very quick, rapid onset relief and a capsule would give you a much more delayed onset, but a longer lasting um, experience. And so uh, what we do with the pharmacists and the doctors is we create a program that gives you the most opportunity to have success throughout your day, depending on also your experience. So the more you use cannabis, the more you're going to be able to take a higher dose or need a higher dose. When you guys uh, bring a new product to market, is it uh, kind of like launch it in every store and see how it does? Or do you guys use one retail location as kind of like your beta testing uh, platform to see how those products do? So we launch it in all of our stores. There's a huge threshold for getting a new product to market. So we um, we generally launch it everywhere. Right now, what we are doing is launching a new strain because flowers allow it. Um, so we're launching a new strain every month. What is we it? Also just, What's um, this month's strain? <laughs> you know, uh, you caught me off guard here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've been doing one or two every month. Usually... Um, uh, and we have four approved ratios of THC and CBD, which is how this is, is dosed. So we do sort of all of those. And then we just launched pre-rolls. Um, and uh, I think we're going to have a few new developments. We're looking into gummies and those kind of things over the next year uh, for launching. But our our markets in each of the dispensary locations are very different. Um, and it's hard to predict how they'll react. So we kind of just... Uh, launch in all four stores and then see where we need to allocate more product moving forward where things are more popular. I want to turn to the inner workings of the, the business. For a vertical integrated company is extremely challenging. You're managing somewhere up to six different businesses simultaneously. So how does like something like that go on? And can you take us kind of the inner workings on some of the challenges of, of overseeing an opportunity like that? So I think right now the the biggest challenge is the changes that are upcoming and and the and the unknown. Um, but really the the main focus is on regulatory compliance. And so that really dictates every everything that we do. And so you have to make sure that not only are you following the state regulation, but you've got like OSHA workplace safety recommendations, you've got the federal CGMP regulations for how to handle food products and pharmaceuticals. And so those really are um, sort of the main core foundation of how how we um, how we function. And it's with 
sort of the mindset of compliance. Uh, but you do have to learn everything. And, and then um, now we're getting big enough uh, that it's nice to have people who can just specialize in certain areas, uh, but you're going to have to be able to oversee everything through, through to, to sale. Um, each segment of the business very much is its own sort of unit. Uh, and requires a different mastery of expertise. And so that's where it came in handy that we had those expertise sort of within my family. Um, uh, But if you don't have a compliance mindset, particularly in New York, but in the cannabis industry, I just don't think you'll be successful. Is there one section of the supply chain that is a little more causes more headaches from a compliance perspective than other sections? I don't think so. They're think all that, equally headaches. <laughs> uh, they're, they're they're all very different, so they all present different challenges. Um, sort of at, at retail, you have no idea what you're going to get. Like the people that walk in in the store. Yeah. Um, we currently grow out of greenhouses, so that the that changes that environment changes seasonally. So you're always facing sort of a different climate, which is going to impact your plants a little differently. Um, and then uh, production. Is very steady, uh, but we're looking at adding new products and how to scale things up. And so that's sort of an efficiency jigsaw puzzle to put together. I was going to say, it's got to be uh, pretty simple with being vertically integrated. Not simple, maybe that's the wrong word, but being vertically integrated provides the opportunity to optimize the flow of material, right? And t- instead of like having to manifest stuff within the, the track and trace software, you're able to kind of just keep it all in-house. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're able to stay very lean because particularly up in our our facility, we're able to leverage our talent in multiple areas so we can train them in all different product buildings. Also, like they they assist in cultivation or we swap a lot of people. So we're able to um, utilize uh, the employees that we do have in a way that's highly efficient. And then um, having your own retail and being able to manage that too, we're able to know exactly the order quantities that we need to build and um, and manage that all in-house. So there are definitely efficiencies that you see in a vertically integrated company because the medical market's so small. Um, you know, we're not realizing the full capacity of that. It really comes at scale, but it definitely is an opportunity. And it helps that you guys, your family and you're sitting there talking. So reviews from consumers will make their way all the way back to the grower. And that, so there's that whole kind of inner working dynamic from like a perfecting all these products and reviews and all that stuff feeding back into the into the yes, system. We take it very personally, but it's also <laughs> very to the people who are building all the products. So we know exactly what people are saying and how we should adapt. Yeah. That that's always strong and not to get consumer feedback on what is working and more importantly what needs to change because those reviews are really critical in helping you, you know, navigate that path forward, especially the unknown ones, but in cannabis. Absolutely. And so we're able to take, you know, feedback that we get at the store and then directly use that in our manufacturing and cultivation processes and make changes to make sure that it's what the customer wants. And so uh, that's something that I think is really unique um, and something we take very seriously. Sometimes it's just hard to hear from your sibling. Well, if it's from a sibling, (laughs) every customer is taken very seriously. (laughs) Mom's got a favorite daughter. Is that is that what you're angle? (laughs) Never. Oh, (laughs) so let's let's continue on the the partnership with Riv Capital. Take us through that conversation. You know, when did that start, and how long does something like that start from like an early conversation to you know signing paperwork? 
I think a, a big misconception is how much work goes into a deal like that. Um, I definitely didn't know. And especially being a small scale, um, a very lean operator, the amount of bandwidth to to do that was um, really intense for us. It also kind of dovetailed. I literally had my my daughter as we kicked it off. But we uh, saw the um, adult use industry uh, coming. They had just passed the MRTA. Uh, and we knew that in order to leverage the full capacity of our license and the opportunity that this license provided, we needed to find a partner. Additionally, New York is discussing a very high entry fee for our category of license into the adult use industry. Um, and we couldn't do both that huge fee and scale our business appropriately. Appropriately, So we knew we needed to take on um, a capital partner. Um, debt is very expensive in the cannabis industry. So that wasn't something that we were inclined towards. Uh, so we kicked off the process. Um, we started sort of looking at a financial advisory firm in a bank um, around June of last year. We kicked off the process in, in September, October. Um, and then we signed uh, April 1st, basically. Um, and so we went through multiple rounds of trying to find the right partner. Um, and we landed on Riv Capital. And part of the opportunity there is they're a very young company as well. And this is their first foray into a plant touching business and direct operations. And so we're able to really uh, use this as a partnership to expand the Etain brand um, and hopefully get that to expand nationally together. And so for us, where we really, really care about the brand, the products and the quality uh, to be able to continue on past this deal and continue to sort of see our vision come to life uh, was a huge opportunity and something that we really valued. That has to be a layered conversation of challenges and, and personal perspectives. So what made you feel comfortable saying that these are the ones we, we want to partner with? So I think that they really valued the Etain brand, what it stood for. I think they see a long-term opportunity for it sort of in their house of brands, I think is the vision. And, uh, you know, it just took a lot of time and a lot of conversations with it, with each other to get there. Um, and it definitely was complicated um, and a very long deal process, but it was one where... Um, you know, we knew this was the partner, uh, we knew we needed a partner, um, and that this would give us the bi biggest opportunity to continue forward with the the what we had already built and to expand on that. Before that, you started looking for partners. Were there other people who had approached you for a similar partnership prior before you had started processing the, the need for taking on additional capital? So people offered to buy us out, you know, the day we got the license <laughs> and we always said no. And we really were not looking to sell. Uh, it really became a function of necessity, knowing that New York was discussing up to a $20 million licensing fee uh, just to get into the adult use industry. Uh, and, you know, that number, I think they've, they've walked away from it, but it's taken, you know, almost two years for them to walk away from that number. So it it really wasn't something we needed to do until we had those kind of details. And um, so uh, we really turned everybody away up until the point when we were like, okay, if we're going to do this, we'll control it and have our own narrative to it. The $20 million is, is pretty steep when you're looking so at it. It's, uh, it's a pretty bold number to be putting out there. 
Yeah, it is very bold. <laughs> so, um, and it's and it's one that you know, especially in New York, we were the only women owned, the only family owned, the only small business. Um, we had up until recently, you know, fifty employees. Uh, whereas most of the other companies in New York are um, all but uh, Pharmacans, I think, is still private. But the rest are uh, public companies with a lot of capital um, and ability to fundraise very quickly, which is just not an option if you're you're private and family owned. And so uh, it really would have just kicked us out of the industry altogether. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we just didn't see long-term viability to being a standalone medical operator. So we just sort of saw the writing on the wall that it would wind up with us going out of business. And so we needed to be proactive in our next steps. Yeah, it's a smart pivot. And for them to just assume, right, like capital is so easy to come by, especially here in cannabis, like uh, it's a bold, it's a bold number for sure. And one that we could probably have additional conversations for at a later point and see, you know, ha- was that the right number? Or was there a different approach that they should have taken? Yeah. So they, I mean, right now it's still speculative, which, which did, cause a little bit of heartache for us because we don't know what that number is. Um, but it was up to 20 million. And so we knew that uh, at a minimum, it was probably going to be something in the millions. Uh, and that would be taking away directly from our ability to also scale the business. And if we're not able to have product to sell in the adult use industry, either because we couldn't afford the licensing fee or the equipment and, and employees to be able to build it, that wasn't going to put us in a position of strength. So uh, we knew we could uh, stay as is. They also don't need to make it a limited license state if they're going to put the price tag at twenty million. Personally, <laughs> interesting. You know, I never, I never thought of it that way. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like it's if, if if the price of the ticket's so expensive, then it's going to automatically eliminate a lot of people looking to buy a ticket. That, <laughs> yep, and and that was something that uh, you know I, I was pretty vocal about. And yeah, um, is. is is uh, particularly if you're looking for uh, diversity at every level of the industry, um, fees like that will limit who has access to uh, being a business owner um, at a vertical level. So you guys are a family-owned business, right? And this topic, right, of raising capital, how did the family kind of come to the conclusion to work with RIB, to go out and raise the capital? Was it y'all sat down at dinner and had a vote? Or how did that whole kind of we dynamic do have, like, go down? You know, work days and normal business hours and, and Zoom <laughs> well, yeah. like this. So, you know, it, it, um, it's not all meals. Um, but we, uh, I mean, it was very much done in a unified way. So uh, we all were part of the process. Uh, involved in in the next steps, like what our priorities were, and everybody had a voice at the table as we as we moved along. What is one factor statistic operating in the cannabis industry that would shock others to know? I think the dirty secret of the cannabis industry is no one's making money. I I think everyone thinks that there is so much money to be made, but when you factor in particularly two eighty e. Just about nobody is making money in the cannabis industry. And so I think people need to be very wary before they enter or they take on loans or leverage themselves in any way um, for what the financials actually look like. And so I I worry uh, that people get caught up thinking it's going to be a great business. And right now it is still very, very tough. And so usually people outside the cannabis industry never believe that. And then you get in it and, and everyone's in the same boat. (laughs) 
Yeah, many, especially here in New York, just anticipate the New York market is just absolutely thriving and that the cannabis trade as a whole is thriving. They see numbers on the media and just naturally assume, oh, everyone is just printing money and couldn't be really farther from the case. Yeah, and and I worry particularly, um, you know, there's a lot of promotion for the industry, but I think there's a lot of unknowns. How many licenses, how many dispensaries there's going to be, what the viability of those are, like what the end goal is. Those Those kind of things haven't really been uh, put out there. And I think that, uh, without those kind of metrics, it's going to be hard to know if you had a dispensary license, if that's really viable. And those are the hardest businesses to operate. So, um, and, and make any money with. And so I, I, I worry about people getting caught up in, in sort of the green rush here. And, um, just like every other state, there being some pretty Poor outcomes very quickly uh, once people <laughs> get their first 280e bill. Do you have any feelings on the gray market in New York? What does that mean? The uh, let's say the unlicensed dispensaries or the the storefronts that are operating and presume themselves as like a a regular storefront, but are not a licensed entity. Well, I think the OCM has been pretty clear that people operating right now without a license are doing so illegally and it can limit their access into the adult use industry. For us, it is frustrating because we have been a legal entity regulated um, intensely for seven, eight years now. Um, And uh, there's a lot more variety that's available at those stores than what we're able to produce in the medical setting. Um, and there's a lot more of those stores open right now than there are medical stores. <laughs> uh, so I think that as as uh, someone in in the industry and being subjected to a completely different set of rules, it's frustrating to watch. I mean, it's a good sign that there's clearly large demand, right? I don't think anyone ever questioned demand. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to sugarcoat it because it is a, yeah, yeah. It's a really negative situation for someone that's operating under the way you're supposed to do it. And you see all these other entities just kind of cutting corners, no taxes, no license fees. They probably aren't worried about 280E. No, I'm sure they're <laughs> having a great day. And, uh, and I think that without, um, right now we're waiting on regulations and what our next steps are. Also without knowing our next steps as a business, it's very hard to understand where we're going to go um, and how we, how we could eventually compete with these entities. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? I think we've changed just about everything from where we started and where we are now. So I, I think that um, being very nimble is what we got right. And then uh, I don't see an issue with sort of getting everything wrong as long as you're willing to change it. So I think we got everything wrong, but we've been able to adapt to make sure that we are um, uh, making those changes very quickly and as the market demands them. 20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that in the cannabis industry. What is that? Well, I think that uh, currently the the regulations that we operate under have not made much progress from seven, eight years ago um, when our primary regulator was the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement in in New York State um, and very much still treated as though we are sort of drug traffickers. Um, like it was in that in mind that we are are dealing an illicit substance. And so if you look at the regulations that we have today um, and how sort of little we've 
moved on them over time. Um, I think it will be kind of silly once, especially once adult use opens, but we get 20 years out from now and we see all the opportunity that we have if you had expanded regulations. I, I also think people misplace fear and, you know, you have all these illicit shops and things like that. And you're not seeing like the direct link of cannabis to any of the the concerns that people have in the communities of, you know, uh, intoxicated driving, um, child, like uh, adolescent access, those kind of things, like uh, be a huge concern <laughs> right now. <laughs> and so I think, you know, placing that on a regulated entity is, is very misplaced and just shows like a lack of education that I hope comes over time and, and helps adapt people's opinions of cannabis. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? I think the main thing I've learned is how to learn and promote others uh, in a way and using that to um, sort of better myself. And so I think that the biggest opportunities that I've seen and, and growth is when I've allowed other people to do things uh, and sort of given up control and really try to surround myself with good people that I trust and make sure it's people you trust, I think would be really important. But uh, we've been able to accomplish so more, uh, so much more uh, by allowing more people to kind of thrive and give them opportunities within this company. Um, and that's been both very rewarding and and helpful for me to grow and learn as an employer and a business owner too. All right, prediction time. It's 2024. What is the biggest challenge over the last two years that new operators were not preparing for? I mean, you look at Michigan, for instance, uh, everyone built these businesses based on like current market values for certain product SKUs, right? And they have it in their spreadsheet. And they went and raised money off of that. And like everything's predicated on that price point typically. And then they get into it six, eight, 12 months. And all of a sudden the price point drops significant over that time period. Like you don't see this in any other industry in terms of the amount of price compression that occurs, right? And how quickly it occurs too. I think it takes a lot of business owners just by just shocks them, right? Just, I mean, you're watching products drop. 90% yep. or something ridiculous from a wholesale, wholesale perspective. So I think that's the biggest kind of uh, blindside situation that happens to a lot of new new entries into the market space. Market. What do you think, Brian? I think what Hillary said about being nimble and flexible is, is so critical. I, I just don't think people recognize that this is not your standard business while things are as stable. You need to be flexible. You need to be nimble. And you need to be prepared for things to be harder than ever before. And even for someone like us who isn't plant touching, has no experience in those those fields, still gets smashed with obstacles over and over again that are just kind of, we can all agree is silly, but is is just the challenges that face the industry. And it's just part of the experience of the, the learning curve. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people who are going to get in interested in making a ton of money are going to be, you know, hit with some different resistance and think it's going to be harder than they ever thought. So, so Hillary, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to buy Etain's product. Where can they find you? You can find us all over. So we have an Instagram page, Twitter. Um, our website is just www.etain.com. 
etainhealth.com. Um, or you can email us at info at etainhealth.com. Any questions, we have Facebook, everything. Uh, so that we're pretty easy to find. Um, and we love hearing from everybody. So uh, please reach out. Everyone go buy the powder in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. This was fun, Ellie. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on Pod. Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.